This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Well, ChatGPT went viral in a record pace. And while most people think about the U.S. and its latest tech advancements, there's a lot happening in generative AI in our own backyard. In the case of BNN Bloomberg, literally in our backyard, Toronto-based Cohere has raised $175 million U.S. in two funding rounds that even included Salesforce as a participant. Aidan Gomez is the co-founder and CEO of Cohere. ChatGPT burst onto the public scene late last year, giving artificial intelligence its aha moment for many people. AI is seemingly everywhere right now, attracting enormous attention and excitement alongside concerns, legal threats, and talk of regulation. The potential of AI is evident to just about everyone, but the challenges associated with bias, copyright, privacy, misinformation, and more can't just be ignored. In response, there have been calls to halt the release of some AI products, even as Canada works towards its own AI regulatory framework in Bill C-27 that thus far has failed to impress. Cohere AI is a Canadian-based AI firm that's widely viewed as one of Canada's artificial intelligence stars for its large language models that enable companies of all sizes to integrate AI technologies. Aidan Gomez, who worked on the T in ChatGPT, is the co-founder and CEO of Cohere AI. He joins me on the podcast to talk about artificial intelligence, large language models, and his views on the myriad of emerging legal and regulatory issues. Aidan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Okay, I'm really glad that you joined. You know, since ChatGPT burst onto the public scene late last year, needless to say, AI has attracted an enormous amount of attention uh, and a lot of excitement. But there, of course, have been some concerns. There's been legal threats, and we certainly see a growing conversation around regulation. I'd like to unpack a bit where AI is now, where it might be headed, and what you think the regulatory environment for AI AI ought to look like. Uh, But before we do that, let's introduce you and Cohere. It might surprise some to learn that Canada has a major AI success story on its hands that operates in the same space as OpenAI and ChatGPT. Can you start us off with a bit of an introduction about yourself and Cohere? Sure, yeah. Um, so, uh, well, maybe maybe it is a surprise. I, I, uh, I think that Canadians should be aware of the history of Canada and AI um, because it's a long one and... Um, I mean, to be frank, like we are the country that built this latest revolution in AI, uh, in particular out of places like the University of Toronto with Jeff Hinton um, and Joshua Bengio at, at UMontreal. Um, and so the history is long and we've been investing in this tech for a long time. Um, but yeah, fo- folks might not know Cohere in particular. Like you say, we do build models that are a similar category to the ones that power chat GPT uh, and GPT three and four. Um, but my my personal intro is that I was part of the team at Google that created the T in chat GPT. So the transformer. Um, and after spending three years at Google as an intern, bouncing around from office to office, working with folks like Jeff Hinton, Jeff Dean, um, my co-founders and I, we decided that 
we wanted to push this technology out into the world further, faster, and give it to more people uh, because there are like real um, barriers to access. One of them, of course, being talent, like AI researchers are extraordinarily rare. Um, and so it makes it difficult for organizations to build their own stuff because they can't get the talent that knows how to build it. Um, the second major barrier is compute. So to train these models, you need a supercomputer, these machines. There's not a lot of them on our planet, uh, but they can cost, you know, a quarter billion dollars to build. And so it's extremely hard to get access to them. And what Cohere is set up to do is to create an interface onto this technology that's accessible by anyone um, and accessible to any organization. So we really want to be the partner for enterprises in, in adopting this. So yeah, that's me and and go here. Okay, thanks for that, and thanks for that clarification. You're right. Uh, you know, people should know about uh, Canada's history with AI. It was more the commercial side that I was thinking about, uh, and there have been often talk about how we do we're great on the research side, less and 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 some people would suggest that we've been less effective on the commercialization side. And Cohere really runs counter to that. So just to ensure that that you know the listeners are clear chat gpt obviously a consumer facing product at the moment so many people are using it you're you're there for enterprises for businesses who want to integrate ai into some of their products or or solutions exactly exactly and i mean we also have a playground that any of your listeners can sign up to and start interacting with these models talking to them um and so it is accessible it's free and you can just start playing um, but yeah, our, our core focus is on developers within enterprises, uh, and helping get this technology into, into products, get it into organizations and, um, help kind of, uh, spawn a, a new generation of products that weren't possible before. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. Those, those new kinds of products are obviously going to raise any number of legal or regulatory issues. You know, they say when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I guess when you're a law professor, everything looks like a legal or regulatory issue. So I've got a bunch of questions. Why don't we start with the large language models that are used to train the AI? Where, where, do, where do they come from? What, what rights, if any, are involved? The backbone is probably considered <clears throat> the transformer, which is the technology that I was part of the team uh, at Google uh, that produced it. And so it was created by Google. Um, it was open sourced and, um, you know, academic paper papers were published about it. Um, but they do hold a patent on it. And so Google claims, and they've held true to this until today, um, they claim that they patent defensively, not offensively. Um, and so they're just preventing someone else from getting a patent on that technology. Transformers are everywhere now, um, basically every single organization. And also they've changed a bit since the initial paper. Um, so small modifications in its architecture, its structure, the way that you train it. Um, and so over time, it, it's maybe separated from that initial pa paper slightly, but I think at its core, um, people would still give this category of large language model the name transformer. Okay. Uh, I, I was thinking both of the technology, but then also as well, the content itself. So if 
or if, if feeding into these systems large amounts of information, ostensibly the internet or even beyond, I suppose, you know, is the, where does this information come from? Is it is it the internet? Who's gathering it? And what rights, if any, are associated with the ability to get kind of to gather that information? Yeah, so it depends on how you go about it as one of the companies building this technology. So on Cohere's side, we abide by all of the scraping rules like robot.txt. Um, and we only scrape web pages from the internet that uh, we're allowed to according to the robot.txt. Um, so it is a huge swath of the internet. Um, a lot of web pages do allow scraping and that's the content that we're pulling to use as part of as part of training um in addition to that we generate our own proprietary data uh so we have human annotators which are uh, teaching our models essentially giving them new knowledge critiquing them um showing them how to do new things um and so it's this combination of models that are trained off the general web like the entirety of the internet um and then proprietary in-house curated data. Okay, that's an interesting mix. So, you know, if, if it's using the search model in the US that's largely grounded in a fair use argument that uh, someone has the ability to, to remove this, but the uses themselves are fair. In Canada, we've got fair dealing. There are other countries that have created specific exceptions for the kinds of uses that you're talking about. Text and data mining exceptions are are what they're described as. Canada still doesn't have one, although the government has consulted on the need for that. Does that ever factor into this? Is there thoughts given to where Canada stands with respect to the ability, let's say, to, to scrape or to gather this data? Because you know, certainly some have raised questions as to whether or not we, we, we need uh, greater clarity in terms of the rights to be able to do that. I think clarity is always a good thing. Um, and so anything that we can do to get more clear guidance around the right ways to do this, the compliant ways to do this. I think that's super, super helpful. My sense is that these language models, um, you, you talk about like transformative use. Um, they really are capable of generating novel concepts. And it's very, you know, you, you have to be really targeted in order for them to regurgitate content that they've seen before. You really need to put an effort to get them to do that. Um, and so like my my personal sentiment towards it is that the language model, in the same way a human goes out on the web and reads and learns and ingests information, the language model is out there learning about this information and, and reading the web. Um, but it's not just copying. It's not like you're downloading it. Um, and then just printing it back to the user. It's it's a very different mechanism. Fundamentally, it's learning. Like there's an objective function and you're, you're training these models. Um, and so it's hard for me to see how simply observing and learning data is the same as copying it. Yeah, no, I, I, and it, I think it's a really interesting way to, to put it. You know, the, in Canada right now, there's a debate over a piece of legislation known as Bill C-18. It's, it's legislation that's designed to provide some support for the, the news sector 
essentially creating mandated payments for links to content found on, on news organization websites. And we've started to see some talk about expanding that principle to AI, ChatGPT really being the trigger for that. In fact, uh, Rupert Murdoch, who was really some of the lead proponents of the, the initial pay for linking approaches, now started to raise that, that same issue. And we've seen some discussion in Canada as well. You have any any thoughts either about the legislation or even more broadly about the notion of of mandated payments for content being included in the models that that teach and allow these AI systems, as you suggest, to learn? Um, well, I think Murdoch uh, is a very clearly conflicted uh, proponent of this policy. So I would say uh, he stands to benefit benefit a lot from asking for payments uh, from content. I, my own my own sense is that logistically, I just don't know how that would be possible. Like, I don't know how you would implement that. Technically, the model is out there on the web, scraping information, learning, reading, um, learning how to you know translate, learning how to do all these different fantastic tasks. Um, but oftentimes the identity or the authorship um of those pieces of content are entirely unknown um and so i i think it's really hard to do attribution and then also when when you're using this model when you put it into production and you ask it to do something it's uh virtually impossible um to say these entries that it saw during the training period are what informed this response it's it's extremely computationally complex. Um, like it's still an area of research, right? Like it, it's there's no practical means for attributing from an output to specific inputs. Sometimes it's clear. Sometimes you can like get the model to copy a specific line from one document, and it's very clear. But in ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the cases, that behavior isn't there. And so it's it's really difficult to figure out how you would do that attribution so that you know who to compensate. Yeah, I mean, some of their argument would be not about compensating based on that ultimate output, but rather on the fact that it is included in the input. And so they'll say, you do know if you are scraping our content, the fact that you are benefiting from being able to teach your system using our our information is such that we ought to be paid for. And I, I listen, I... I, I recognize that you know part of the argument is, hey, if you don't want to be part of this, there's an easy mechanism to ensure that you're not included. But they would say, no, we we'd like to be included, but we'd also like to be paid. Interesting. Well, yeah, I would say, as you point out, um, we abide by robots.txt, and um, you have a very clear opportunity to opt out. At the same time, Cohere isn't adverse to paying for content, right? Like we pay for all that proprietary data in-house that we're generating. We also have partnerships with organizations that give us data that we include as part of the, the training process. So we're never, never, ever opposed to that. Like we love any, anyone who has rich sources of information that contribute to the model's knowledge, its capabilities. We're very willing to pay for that information. Um, but if you're putting stuff out on the web, for free with a compliant robots.txt file. Um, there is the case that it could get into Cohere. It also could not. We don't scrape the entire web. 
Now, what about that? What about that output side? Now, I know that uh, some of the some of the models seek to disclaim ownership and avoid some of the some of the pretty what are pretty thorny legal questions about uh, the copyright or the rights associated with with what gets generated. Now, I recognize that you're focused more on a, on sort of the back end, in a sense, allowing enterprises to be able to use this. But you said people can still play around with it. You know, do you do the same? Do you have thoughts on how we might resolve? some of these kinds of questions about the rights associated with works that come out of AI systems? Yeah, I, I do wonder um, whether we should allow copyright of model outputs. Um, I think a, a big part of me says no. Um, I, I, yeah, like the attribution or um, the rights associated to that model's outputs, I, I feel like they're not written by a person. They're not uh, they're not created by by someone, and so it feels a little bit complicated to assign assign ownership uh, in that model. At the same time, if it's part of a loop where a human's involved and a human is reviewing that output and says, you know, I like this, he even just expresses, I think this is a good output that I want to sign under my name. I, I think that they should be able to claim ownership of that because they discovered it and they're putting it out into the world. Um, but the machine itself, uh, I think is a much more philosophical, uh, topic of discussion, whether can it possess ownership over its, over its outputs. Yeah, no, and, and certainly IP authorities are struggling with some of the some of exactly those kinds of questions, you know, the, the copyright issues I think are going to take some time to resolve and figure out. There's a privacy dimension here as well. We just had in Italy, actually, the data protection commissioner there uh, essentially said that they wanted to ensure their rules applied to chat GPT. Uh, chat GPT has said they're going to exit the Italian market for the moment. Uh, do you factor in personal information and some of the associated privacy rules as part of this? Yeah, so we try to avoid personal information like at all costs because of this privacy issue. Part of our value proposition for enterprises is data privacy and um, compliance with all the different regulations and all the different parts of the world. So we take it super seriously. Um, and we're always trying to make our models more robust so that they don't actually pick up sensitive information, uh, PII. So yeah, that's a that's a huge area of concern and investment. Um, I guess we're lucky in that we're not a consumer company, and so uh, we don't just have random people on the internet putting in their, you know, social insurance number or whatever. Um, we benefit from from that in some sense, and that we're working with trusted organizations and we're creating custom models for them trained on their data and it's only deployed within their organization and so it's a more sandboxed um deployment model than just throwing it out on the internet and letting every single person put their information in um but yeah definitely i see the concerns around privacy and that's why it's such a big focus at cohere Okay, that's interesting. I mean, sometimes closely associated with that, literally embedded within the same legislation, is AI regulation more broadly. Canada's got Bill C-27 right now, which is both privacy reform bill, but also has an AI regulation piece. 
Uh, it follows from EU work on, on AI regulations as well. The Canadian effort right now, I think it's fair to say, is pretty vague and leaving a lot of the issues to future regulations. You know, how closely do you track some of these issues? What What is the impact more broadly of, of the AI regulation space, which is obviously gathering a lot of steam right now? Yeah, listen, I, I think it's fantastic that policymakers are actively engaging in these questions. Um, like I said, <clears throat> clarity is like really, really helpful here. Um, it's tough to be in the dark. I think the one thing that we want to avoid is that we have to admit the field is still nascent. Like this technology is like still in its infancy. Um, and what we need to avoid within Canada and what each nation needs to avoid is like grossly encumbering innovation and basically seeding seeding the benefits of the technology to the largest organizations that exist on the planet who are capable of you know working with regulators and they do have the money to pay for those projects and oversight and audits etc cetera, etc cetera. um if too early in the technology development cycle very strong regulation comes in what happens is that you just cut out the bottom category of companies startups you know small enterprises folks just like trying to break in and so as one example i think in uh, ADA or AIDA, the uh, the Canadian policy, they wrote in a $50 million fine, <laughs> like under really vague terms of like when you would get fined or who would get fined and why. Um, and if you're a company starting up in, in Canada, you're gonna have to explain to investors why you have this $50 million weight <laughs> hanging above you that could just crush your company at any moment if some you know, policymaker decides, hey, I don't like that company. Um, whereas for, you know, folks like the largest enterprises, that's a, that's not even a slap on the wrist. That's just a tap on the shoulder. Um, so my sense is that you have to be quite careful, especially at this stage of the technology development. Um, and you do need to, like, uh, the Canadian government commented on this recently. They announced a side letter to... Uh, to AI to the, the policy. Um, but you do need to remember that there is legal coverage for people who are using AI for nefarious practices, right? Or doing consumer harm. We have tons of consumer protections and consumers are protected under those, whether it's involving AI or not, it doesn't really matter. And so putting this $50 million weight over the heads of startups, um, while also releasing something that's super vague and it's not entirely clear for me how I would comply with it. Um, it does damage to the startup world and it doesn't give us clarity, which is the whole point of this policy, right? Like that's what we want is clarity on how to comply. Um, and so not just Canada, but globally, I really think that um, policymakers need to be innovation friendly uh, and focused. Um, and in my conversations with folks who are a part of drafting these policies, these bills, I've been impressed. Like they're very empathetic to that. Um, and I, I do believe that they're trying to work towards something that's, uh, you know, net positive for the country, for the world, for 
um, you know, the company's building. Um, so I, I, I do have strong optimism that we'll get there, but certainly from what I've seen so far, a lot of these bills uh, are problematic. Uh, they're underspecified and um, they are likely counterproductive. Okay. I mean, I, and listen, I, th I think those crit criticisms have been raised pretty repeatedly around AIDA. I, th I think that's right. But you know, at the same time, th there were those that say, listen, we're dealing in real time right now with concerns. We are, we'd already talked about privacy, but of course, misinformation, the biases that may exist in some of these systems. And, and many would say, we can't afford to wait until it becomes arguably too late once this becomes so embedded. You, you know, Recognizing the need for glare, greater clarity, do you have thoughts on, on how we go about trying to address these, these issues now? I mean, is it a matter of, as you say, allowing this to unfold or what can we be doing now to alleviate some of the kinds of concerns that have been raised? Well, I mean, there's a great deal of, of passion within my field, like the folks who, I, like I'm an AI researcher by, by practice, um, and AI ethics, AI safety um, addresses exactly these concerns, and it's a huge part of what we do. I, there is no AI researcher or developer out there um, who isn't engaged in these conversations and hearing the arguments and uh, making their own decisions as a consequence. So the first thing to say is, uh, there are very active efforts to mitigate to mitigate risk. Um, I think we need to get specific around the sorts of risks. I think bias and misinformation are, are fantastic because those are specific risks. Um, on the side of bias, uh, there are lots of methods that can reduce that. Um, and there are lots of protections in place to protect consumers from bias in scenarios where it's harmful. Um, for instance, in automated assessment of insurance claims and applications, that type of thing. Um, so those protections exist, right? And every company that's wanting to work in that space with an automated system needs to use the methods that research has developed to reduce bias. Um, so that's well-known, well-regulated. Um, on the other side is misinformation, which is a more complex subject because these models are starting to write. They're starting to express uh, opinions as facts and sometimes they're overconfident and sometimes they misrepresent things. Um, and so that's an area, that's an active area of research. And I think the technology is getting closer to one that is actually capable of having verification. For instance, if you look at systems like Bing Chat, where it actually cites paper, sorry, not papers, it cites web pages where mm -hmm. it's drawing information from. And so the human who's reading the response of this model can click in and see, is it telling the truth? Is that actually what that web page says? So there's now the ability to go one step deeper and you don't need to just take the model at its word. In the same way, you don't need to just take a person at their word. You can ask them for citations or ask them for evidence. Um, so I think the technology is pressing towards solutions to both bias and misinformation, um, principally because it's a bad user experience if you're talking to a model that has bias or, or spews out stuff that you can't trust. Like, like, it's not a useful piece of technology. And so 
given two options, one company offering this model, which has bias and misinformation, and another one which, which doesn't, every single company, every single consumer is going to take the one that they can trust and that uh, isn't biased, is least biased. Um, so they're very natural pressures in the right direction. Um, yeah, that's kind of my my understanding of the state of things. Okay, it's interesting. No, that 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 attribution is an interesting point because then it actually does circle back a little bit to some of the the online news payment issues where that are premised on payments for links, which actually disincentivize providing that attribution because suddenly you find yourself now in a system where you'd be required to pay. So um, I personally think it's a very poorly thought out bill, not uh, solely for that reason, but that would be one of them. You know, why don't we, why don't we close with this? There was, there was a recent letter signed by amongst others, Bengio, uh, calling for a halt for now to, uh, to some of the experimentation that we see with respect to AI. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on the, that future of life letter and that, that mounting call where we see a lot of concerns about where these systems are headed and saying, well, we need to to hit the pause button. I think it's important to understand who is the one making the call um, for a pause. I, I really think it's it borders on fear-mongering. Um, one of the most vocal signatories of the letter, he wrote a piece uh, which called for the bombing of data centers uh, for fear of an AI escaping uh, and quickly becoming embodied by emailing DNA strings to like, it, it literally sounds like sci-fi fantasy. And, and that's because it is right. Like it's inspired by human storytelling, very vivid imagination, like extraordinary extrapolation um, to a completely irrational extent. Um, so I think a wholesale pause, it makes no sense whatsoever, because as the, the status quo is that right now, democratic nations are the ones that are ahead in this and that have a lead and have an advantage. And AI, I think most of us agree, giving intelligence to our machines is going to be completely transformational to economies, daily life, et cetera. Um, we should not cede that to non-democratic adversaries and us pausing and saying, hey, let's just stop AI development. It's not a good. It's not a good. And the basis, if you read through the letter, the basis for this call for a pause um, is really like fanciful fears of um, an AGI god that could emerge. And it, it's just detached from reality. Like as someone building the technology and kind of face to face with it on a daily basis, um, I'm really disappointed by that letter. Uh, and I, I think it does far more harm to the narrative than good. Uh, fear mongering is not, not productive. Um, on the flip side, I, I would call back to the policy work and the folks that I've been talking to in government actually trying to implement practical policies that, you know, do good i like the discourse there is much more grounded in reality um much more productive and um it's really disappointing to see uh that list of signatories yeah i mean it's interesting i said that was the last question it was just i guess one quick follow you know the there's often a perception or claims that tech industries are very reluctant to embrace regulation and that they will 
you know, do whatever they can to stop regulation from coming. But, but it sounds like you're, you're positing that the, the, the way forward in many ways to assuage the kinds of concerns that have been arising is through uh, a forward-looking regulatory framework that, that can provide people with some of the assurances around the concerns that have been raised, whether that's around privacy or bias or some of the other issues that come up. Totally. I, I think um, establishing clear lanes for us to continue to innovate, like having I, the British called their uh, recent AI policy draft, like a, I believe it was called like an innovation focused uh, framework for AI regulation or, or something like that. I think if you establish clear lanes for the existing efforts to course along and to advance and um, be able to compete on a global stage, that's the best thing that you can do because it provides clear coverage for that company to operate and execute as quickly as it possibly can. Um, so I'm, I'm not at all opposed to regulation. I am opposed to fear mongering. <laughs> so that letter is super, super disappointing. Um, but like I said, I, I have a lot of faith that policymakers are going to continue to iterate on these, not sign them into law too early. Um, and we'll include folks like myself uh, and others building this technology as part of the conversation. Okay. Well, you know, that 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 conversation is likely to, to start in the coming weeks as the bill is all likelihood headed to uh, House review. And hopefully your voice will be be one of them so that it's it that the discussions and the legislation is informed by people working in the in the area. So so thanks for the that work you're doing and thank you for this conversation and joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.